0: All right, you can have a seat. Hey, if you, have a, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. Open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're gonna be in chapter two. And so if you get yourself situated there, and while you do, uh, I wanna just take a, a minute here at the start of our services and spend uh, just a moment as a congregation in prayer for uh, our, our students who restarted school teachers who uh and administrators who are back into buildings but also parents who might be teaching from home and whether that's on some days of the week or all the days of the week and that wasn't something that you necessarily had written in for 2020 um let's just let's take a moment and pray for uh that sort of back to school process but also for the days that are ahead of us uh and all that that might entail sound good let's pray uh, God, we thank you for uh, the, the children and students in our congregation. God, we thank you for um, that unique season of life for them and the opportunity for families and for teachers, for a community to get to uh, steward those children and have influence and teach and instruct and to see them grow and mature, not just in the things that they know, but... Um, in the people that they are becoming. Lord, this this school year is certain to be uh, one that is unique and is different. And we don't know all the things that lie ahead in that. Um, but God, I pray that you would give wisdom and uh, discernment to those at the school district level who are making decisions about what school looks like right now and what it might have to look like a few months from now. God, I pray that you would give parents wisdom and discernment as they filter that information and continue to try to make decisions that are best for their children. God, we pray for teachers, whether those are uh, teachers who work in a school district in a building or parents who are schooling from home or overseeing virtual days or whatever the case might be. Um, God, would you give them a just a love and a passion for the students that they interact with. Um, God, would you give them a patience with getting settled into new routines and a normal that looks entirely different than uh, anything that we've ever experienced before? God, would you give students patience as those who are instructing them get settled in, as they try to find a rhythm in a schedule that looks different or learning from home that is maybe not something they've ever done before. God, would you um, help them over the course of this year to absorb information and learn and grow intellectually, but also to uh, grow in their maturity and how to handle change and to work through circumstances that look different and to um, navigate Uh, seasons of life that maybe aren't ideal or aren't what they would would have naturally wanted or naturally thought for themselves. God, we pray that you would give protection to our children and students in school buildings. God, we pray that uh, ultimately the result of this semester, this school year, God, um, would be that there's an opportunity for the gospel to go forward in homes, that there's an opportunity for the gospel to go forward in public school buildings and private school buildings, that you would grow a passion for yourself within those students who already know you, and that you would draw other students to you over the course of this school year. God, we're thankful for uh, a new season, a new year. Even though it looks different, Lord, would your hand and your blessing be upon it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to jump into uh, something new over the next five weeks. We've been uh, working through the book of Esther. We finished that last week. Um, I hope that working through an Old Testament narrative was something that was fruitful for you. Um, I hope it was something that uh, you learned not only about the book of Esther, but you were also able to see and to learn about the gospel and also about what it looks like to read an Old Testament narrative in light of New Testament reality and in light of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. What we're going to do over the next five weeks is spend some time talking about who we are as a church. If I had a bucket up here, and I filled that bucket up with water, and I put just even the tiniest hole in the bottom of that bucket, water would drip out at some rate based on the size of the hole. And eventually, if I wanted a full bucket, I would have to continue to put water in as water came out the bottom. There's a common maxim in like leadership Uh, the leadership realm, that vision leaks, that over time, the thing that you're working toward or the thing that your team or your organization or your church is about becomes muddy in everyone's minds and that that's just kind of a reality about life and about leadership. Our vision here is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We wanna do that in the Northland. We want to do that in and through our church across the nation and also around the world. We also want to be clear about what a devoted follower of Jesus is. And so the why for uh, the reason we exist is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. The what of that answers the question, well, what is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? It makes no sense to have a goal and then not to define what the goal entails. And so you see on things that we print and we used to put in your hands that we don't We don't do that anymore. Who knows when we will? But you see five little icons, different colors, and oftentimes there's verbiage next to those. Sometimes it's just the icons. Those five things represent what we have defined, what we believe scripture has defined, is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, an individual who's gospel-centered, who's disciple-making, mission-driven, who's pursuing holiness and is humbly unified, What we want to do over the course of the next few weeks is shed some light on those five. Things. We want to define what we mean by those terms. We want to display that those aren't things that we came up with in a meeting one day, but instead they're scriptural realities that are found throughout the Bible and ought to impact anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. We want to talk about how that characteristic impacts what we do here as a church from a staff and a leadership team perspective. And we also want to talk about what that biblical characteristic calls all followers of Jesus to. We know that you might not ever be able to name the five characteristics that we've identified. There's not going to be a pop quiz at the end of this, and there's not going to be a test two months from now. We know that you might always struggle to line the words up with the little icons that are supposed to represent them, but it isn't going to be because we don't talk about them, and it isn't going to be because they don't influence how it is that we do ministry here as a church. And so we've had a number of new people come and join us over the last few months since we um, re-initiated services. And we thought this would be a good time as we're kind of getting more people back into the building and new people joining us to just lay out who we are as a church. We're going to start this morning by talking about what it means to be gospel-centered. Here's just uh, kind of a landing point for us today, that a gospel-centered life is a life that sees, cherishes, and exalts the gospel in everything the key word there is everything we're going to start at the core of who we are those five characteristics don't necessarily work in some magical order but there is one that provides the foundation that everything else stands on that one core characteristic of a devoted follower of Jesus is that they're centered on the gospel so let me just start with a definition this is right off of our website We define a gospel-centered individual as someone who lives our, that to live a gospel-centered life means that the gospel forms the core of our understanding of who God is and how we engage in all of life's situations. The defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus is belief in the truth of the gospel message, that Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of humanity, that he was raised to life in triumph over sin and death, That all who believe in him are forgiven of their sin and made righteous before him. That truth is the center of all of human history. And it ought to be central to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. To be gospel centered means understanding the gospel's implications on our beliefs, but also on our behaviors. Following Jesus is not merely an issue of intellectually understanding the facts of the gospel. But it's an issue of building our lives both in belief and action on a reliance upon the truth that Jesus died for our sin. At a very base level, being gospel-centered means that we understand first and foremost that it is the grace of God received by faith in Jesus Christ that saves. There is no being a devoted follower of Jesus if you haven't first been saved by the work of Jesus. Being gospel-centered means we understand that grace saved us not anything that i have done that i could ever do or that i will ever do being gospel-centered helps keep us from living as if we are the ones who ultimately save ourselves as if my behaviors somehow hold fast my own salvation being gospel-centered means that we live in a way that's reliant upon grace, not just for salvation, but for all things related to sanctification and for daily living. Keeping the gospel at the center of our lives help us buffer ourselves from turning to and worshiping something other than God. Look, our flesh wants to look at other stuff and worship something other than him. There's no living as a devoted follower of Jesus If you don't keep the work of Jesus at the forefront of your heart and mind in all things. Joe Thorne describes what it means to be gospel-centered this way. He says the gospel-centered life is a life where a Christian experiences a growing personal reliance on the gospel that protects them from depending on their own religious performance and being seduced or lured by idols. We could take any number of verses from the New Testament to talk about being gospel-centered. Colossians 2.6 says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Romans 12.1 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies or your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to really pick apart one verse this morning. It's one verse from 1 Corinthians chapter two, and we're going to spend the rest of the sermon just working our way through it. So if you've got 1 Corinthians open, I'm going to read the first two verses of 1 Corinthians two. We're going to focus on 1 Corinthians two, verse two. 1 Corinthians two starts this way. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, that's Paul, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I decided to know nothing among, among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We're going to work our way through that verse backwards. We're going to kind of take it by phrase, start at the end of the sentence, and work our way to the front. Let me give you just a little bit of context. In fact, you can see this context if you just flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible open there in front of you or you've got it on your phone, swipe over a chapter or just flip back a page if you need to. Why does Paul emphasize that he didn't come with brilliance of speech or with like human wisdom? Because that was the currency of his day. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no division among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Paul's reminding them, forget everything else. You have relationship with with Jesus Christ, and that is what matters most. Despite anything else, the people in Corinth and Christians today who read this all over the world ought to rally behind one reality, the death of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That should be the thing that pulls us all together. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, her family, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas," or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? People were lining up behind their preferred teacher. The city of Corinth was like a gathering spot for philosophers and speakers and teachers in that day. And it was very normal for an individual within the city of Corinth to say, this is the philosopher or the thinker or the speaker that I most closely align with. That had found its way into the church so that people were saying, I follow this teacher, Apollos, or I follow Paul. And Paul is saying, we've got to stop that. We line up behind Jesus and nothing else. Jump down to verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the preacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since... In God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For if the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because Christ's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in this world to shame the strong. Real wisdom is found in Christ. Thus, followers of Jesus boast in him. He's our righteousness, he's our sanctification, he is our redemption, he is everything. And so Paul arrives at his statement at the start of chapter 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me do some immediate applying. Paul's writing to a congregation that is divided and distracted. They've got troubles outside the church that Paul addresses throughout this letter and 2 Corinthians. They've got troubles inside the church which Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They're divided by economics or class. They're divided by different ideologies. They're divided by race, Jew or Gentile. They're split into factions based on things other than the unifying presence of the gospel. Sound familiar? Paul says, I committed myself to one thing, Christ and him crucified. That is something that our world could use today not just preachers, but followers of Jesus who are committed to one thing above all other things. And that one thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now let's talk about what that means exactly. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we're gonna be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ who lives a gospel-centered life, we need to be enthralled with the gospel. What do I mean by the gospel? If You don't have to flip over, but if you were to go to the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, "'For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures.'" that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. When we talk about being gospel-centered and we talk about the gospel, we're saying that Jesus Christ is the only way. That he was sinless in and of himself and yet he died for our sins. That he absorbed the just wrath and punishment from God that our sin deserved despite deserving no wrath in and of himself. That he was buried and that he resurrected on the third day. That he triumphed over the power of sin and the reality of death. That all of that is authenticated by scripture. It was both foretold and then it was fulfilled. And then Paul says, if you need any proof, Jesus appeared to a bunch of people after his resurrecting and you can go and ask them. All of that means for us that Jesus Christ is the only way, that we can be made righteous because he died for our unrighteousness, that the wrath that we deserve in our own sin was taken upon Jesus himself, that when he was buried and resurrected on the third day, he triumphed over the power of the death that we deserve. To be gospel centered is to have your breath taken away by those realities and then to be happy just living the rest of your life winded because you can't regain your breath from how marvelous the truth of the gospel is Think back if you're married think back to when you first like laid eyes on your spouse and your breath was taken away they were just they were young probably first of all and they were so beautiful As I get older, I realize what happens as you get older. You saw your spouse and you were just absolutely floored. And you might be 5, 10, 15, 40 years into marriage. And you look at your spouse and your breath is still taken away and you know so much more about them now than you did the first time you saw them. You know all of their flaws. You know all of their quirks. You know all of their brokenness. You know all of their flesh, and yet your breath is still taken away. To be someone who lives a gospel-centered life is to see the beauty of the gospel for the first time and have it absolutely floor you and then to learn more and more and more and more about the depth of your own sin and the beauty of what has happened to you by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and to just constantly have your breath taken away and to be fine with it. That, Paul says, is of most importance the unique thing that Christians offer their own hearts in the world is the message of the gospel. The message that grace saves. The message that grace sanctifies. The message that grace will one day glorify us and to rely on that and nothing else. If you've not received that grace in your life, the Lord might be drawing you to that today. I cannot stress enough How important it is to receive that grace for your salvation. Jesus Christ in Him crucified. But Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in Him crucified. If we're to live gospel centered lives, we not only need to be enthralled with the gospel, we need to be held by the gospel. Yes. The most important message we offer the world is the message of the truth of the gospel. But to know nothing means more than just spending our entire lives drawing the bridge illustration or walking people through three circles and saying nothing else. It means more than me getting up here and laying out the path to salvation. Knowing nothing among you except means more than just speaking the truth of the gospel at all times and doing nothing else. Intellectually, it means that there's a factual component. We need to know the truth of the gospel. We should be able to communicate the truth of the gospel. We should know scripture and all of its implications. There's only one source for that, and it's the Bible. The Bible that's read and studied and prayed and empowered within us by the Holy Spirit. Intellectually... The truth of the Bible and the truth of the gospel must be the lens through which we see everything else in the world around us. Again, that's the one unique thing we have to offer the world. And yet, there's more to knowing Jesus Christ than just knowing some facts. There's a relational component. We are to know Christ relationally in everything that we do, in your career. What does it mean to know Christ in the middle of planning budgets or working a hiring process or just working on a spreadsheet on a computer all day? What does it mean to know Christ relationally as you teach students, as you make decisions as a principal, as you interact in legal transactions if you're a lawyer, or in financial transactions if you work in the financial industry? What does it mean to know Christ relationally in our friendships, in moments where we've gotta hold someone accountable, at times when there's disagreement, when someone's rubbed you the wrong way, when you just go and hang out together? What's it mean to know Christ in those places? What about knowing Christ in our rest and in our recreation or our entertainment? What's it mean to know Christ as we watch Patrick Mahomes play football? What does it mean to know Christ as we go on a long walk or enjoy a beautiful sunset or take a vacation and see the mountains or the ocean? How do we know Christ in our parenting? What does it mean to know Christ relationally while you change a diaper or while you wrestle three kids out the door for school in the morning? What does it mean to know Christ while you parent through a difficult season of teenage life? What does it mean to know Christ while you release your kids out into the world on their own? How do we know Christ relationally when we watch the news? Rather than knowing Anderson Cooper or knowing Tucker Carlson or knowing some other news anchor, how do we watch the news and know Jesus relationally? How do we know Jesus relationally in our finances how do we know jesus relationally when we're working out or in our marriage or while we're grocery shopping all that we experience in life and all that it stirs or creates within us must be put through the lens of the gospel and there's good news in that because there is deeper joy to be had in all of life's experiences when we allow christ to have his rightful place within them Yes, you could just go hiking one day and enjoy the beauty of the mountains. But when you invite the creator of those mountains into that experience with you, there is deeper joy to be had than just looking at some nice trees or a beautiful like landscape out in front of you. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, tell me that your experience is all concerned with the Lord Jesus Christ and you and I will find much to rejoice in. The more Christ there is in it, the more precious it is. As followers of Jesus who want to live gospel-centered lives, our inward world needs to be totally shaped and formed by the gospel. All of our thoughts and feelings and preferences and desires, our longings and yearnings and dreams are put through the lens of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Some of those need to be sanctified. And so we allow the Holy Spirit to confront what needs to be confronted. All of our motivations for acting in obedience to God come not from a longing to earn salvation, but from a rejoicing that we have received it. The way we process what we see and perceive in the world. Our internal world is to be ordered first and foremost by the gospel. But so is our outward world. The way we interact with the circumstances and situations and events in the world around us have to be ordered by what we see in the gospel what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. To know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified means not just to know him in our hearts and minds, but also to know him in how we behave and interact with the world. It's to be motivated by the message and the model of Jesus and to act accordingly. Not to gain salvation, but because we've been given salvation. Not to please the Lord and somehow work our way into relationship with him, but because we've already been pardoned by him thanks to his grace. Not to achieve salvation for ourselves, but because we have received it. To be gospel-centered is to understand the motivation for why we act in the world, but also to understand how it is that we are to act in the world. This is the beauty of the Christian life. We know Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we ought to be increasingly knowing all that that entails for how it is that we are to live. And when we commit to knowing nothing else other than him, it impacts everything else about who we are and how we live in this world. I decided to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're enthralled with the gospel. We are held by the gospel. And last, we're determined to stay in the gospel. Paul starts by saying, I decided. Your translation might say, I determined or I resolved. There's a reason those two words are at the front. And it's because it isn't easy to do this. It's easier to know other stuff. It's easier to live in response to our circumstances or to the world and the events around us. Our flesh would prefer to act in different ways at times, both internally and externally. It takes effort to work and to live in a gospel-centered kind of way. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, It's difficult, but there's good news. And that good news is that the grace that was powerful enough to save you is also powerful enough to sustain itself within you. We as followers of Jesus have the beauty of Christ in front of us. We've been given scripture to usher us into the truth of all that being gospel-centered means. We have fellowship within the local church to hold us accountable and to walk alongside us. We've been given the Holy Spirit to guide and lead and help us in this process. And we have grace when we come up short or when we get off track. But there also has to be a measure of resolve within us. Ultimately, it is a decision and a commitment to live with the gospel at the front of all that we do. It will put us at odds with the world at times. It will leave us feeling in tension with many aspects of our society. It means we'll have to count the cost. It means we'll have to pick up our cross at times. It means that we will have to confront areas of our sin. It will push us into areas of faith and discomfort, into obedience and submission beyond where we would normally probably want to stay. But the gospel will never call us to any of those things without also supplying the grace we need to walk faithfully in them. The bottom line is that you will not haphazardly drift your way toward living a gospel-centered life. It's something that you will have to submit yourself to day in and day out. And by the grace of God, you have the Holy Spirit within you to lead and guide that. You have scripture to lead and guide that. And you have the image of the cross in front of you at all times. A gospel-centered life is a life that sees, cherishes, and exalts the gospel in everything I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified what commitments does that mean that we're making to you as a church first and foremost it means that we preach exegetically We take large passages of scripture and we work our way through them. Why do we do that? Because ultimately what you need and what I need are not my thoughts or any other preacher's thoughts on any given topic. You need God's thoughts as he has already presented them from scripture. We all need truth. And our first commitment to you as a church that wants to be centered on the gospel and wants to build devoted followers of jesus who are centered on the gospel is that we will default to the truth of scripture in all that we do that directs how we set up curriculum throughout all ages of ministry here that's why our children's ministry operates the way that they do our student ministry operates the way that it does our small groups function like they do why we preach like we do it dictates the songs that we sing Sure, there are probably songs on the radio that have great melodies and great beats and you would love for us to sing them here and we choose not to. It doesn't mean that we dislike the artist or something like that. It just means that we prize above all else in our worship the lyrics that we sing. What matters most to us is that we gather together on a Sunday morning and we corporately sing the truth of the gospel and we lift that up alongside one another. Why? Because we need constant reminders about what the truth of the gospel is. And what we rehearse and practice in here will have impact for how we live when we go from here. Gospel centrality dictates how we do ministries within, ministry within our walls, but also how we do ministry beyond the walls of our church, the organizations that we partner with the ministries that we engage in alongside other churches and alongside other organizations here within our community. Gospel centrality sets the agenda for our push toward discipleship, which we'll talk about more in a couple weeks, our push toward global missions among unreached people groups in cross-cultural settings. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. Gospel centrality creates the passion that we have for community and unity within our body, within our staff, and within our leadership team. Gospel centrality illustrates for us what holiness looks like, how we pursue it, and why that matters to us. And so the commitment that we make to you is that in the same way that the gospel is to impact everything that you do and I do in life, we want the gospel to impact everything that we do as a church in ministry, from the preaching that happens from this pulpit to what happens in the nursery over there and the ministries that we engage in in our community and around the globe. Living a gospel-centered life also calls us to something as followers of Jesus, though. If you look down right by kind of the legs of your chair, you have a communion cup. Go ahead and grab that. Let me give you uh, a couple of instructions because this isn't normally how we take communion. You'll notice that you can pull like the entire tab on top, but there's also a little pull for the cellophane. You're going to want to pull the cellophane first. That'll get you the wafer. Then pull the top, and that'll open up the juice. So go ahead and do that, and then just hold on to it. What the gospel calls us to as followers of Jesus is simple. It calls us to being so transformed by the goodness and the grace of what Jesus has done for us on the cross that we want nothing more than the gospel of the goodness of, or than all of the goodness and the grace of the gospel. That's it. The gospel calls us to fall in love with what God has done for us in Christ, to fall in love with it once and be saved, to fall in love with it every day and be sanctified, to fall in love with it for a lifetime and be glorified. The gospel calls us to craving all of God and his goodness. The calling is not to add the gospel into your life and then keep it in a box on one side of your life. The calling is to have everything upended by the gospel in such a way that it turns everything you thought you knew upside down. The calling is to have everything that you once thought was good in life either shown for the hollow husk that it truly is or given its true value because of the presence of the all-surpassing beauty and glory of God in it. Tim Keller says it this way, Christianity isn't something you add. It's an explosion that changes everything you had. The gospel is the truth that Jesus Christ, his body was broken, his blood was poured out, That the grace of God might put us in right relationship with God. That the just punishment for our sin was absorbed by someone other than ourselves that we have been made righteous not because of something that we've done but because of what christ did and who christ is and to be gospel centered is to keep that in front of your heart in your mind in your life at all times in all situations and to exalt it in all times at all times and in all situations and so we come together and we haven't had a chance to do this in a long time to take communion with each other why We sing the truth of the gospel because we need to hear it. We preach the truth of the gospel because we need to see it from scripture and be reminded of it from God's words. And we take communion because our eyeballs need to see what Christ has done for us. We need tangible, tactile reminders of the fact that Jesus had his blood spilled and his body broken on our behalf. And so it's a great joy for us to get to do this today and then to get to worship alongside one another. Living with the gospel at the center means allowing the gospel to do its work in every area of our lives. That when you wake up in the morning, you remember Jesus crucified on your behalf. Brothers and sisters, this is a visual reminder of Jesus's body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. This is a tangible reminder of his blood poured out for you, a blood that now washes you clean in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and will one day enable you to stand in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. Take and drink in remembrance of him. To be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is to allow the reality of the gospel to impact everything about who you are. We want to do ministry in such a way as to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who allow the gospel to work with that kind of power, with that beauty and that glory, both in their life and through their life. A gospel-centered life is one that ever, always, and increasingly declares, in all of my sorrow, in all of my triumph, in all of my difficulty, in all of my comfort, Jesus is better. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.